from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. I am so glad you're here listening in on a conversation once again, now in our eighth year on air. Every week, we've been exploring those things related to work and the rest of your life, your family, your community, our society, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program, and I now run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. If you visit totalleadership.org, you can find information about how we help people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. Yes, it can be done. Check it out, totalleadership.org. All kinds of free stuff there. New episodes of this show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM Channel 132, our home. Be sure to follow us, too, on Twitter, SXM Business, and I'm at Stu Friedman. Well, President Biden has signed a $1.9 trillion COVID-19 aid package that'll bring much-needed financial help to families still struggling to make ends meet and care for their children during this pandemic. It also includes $50 billion for child care providers. My guest today calls that the most significant boost for child care in decades, but adding that it is far from enough. And I share that view. Julie Cashin is the director for women's economic justice and a senior fellow at the Century Foundation, which is a progressive independent think tank that fights for economic, racial and gender equity in education, healthcare, and work. Julie, welcome to Work in Life. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Oh, let me just say a little bit more about you before we begin our conversation. Julie has spent her career working for more just and equitable public policies and has more than two decades of experience forwarding women's economic justice issues in federal and state government, including as labor policy advisor to the late Massachusetts Senator Ted Kennedy and as deputy policy director for former New Jersey Governor John Corzine. She's helped to draft and build momentum for three major pieces of national legislation. The first national paid sick days bill called the Healthy Families Act, major child care legislation and the National Domestic Workers Bill of Rights. Her writing has appeared in Ms. Magazine, Politico, Medium, CNBC and The Hill. Julie holds a master's in public policy from Harvard University's Kennedy School and a bachelor's with highest honors in political science. Get ready, folks. It's from, yep, the University of Michigan. Go, Go Blue. Blue, which is where, of course, I have my PhD. So we're going to be talking a lot about Michigan here, or maybe not. Julie also serves as a senior policy advisor to the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Julie, it's really a pleasure to have you here. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. So let's first talk about the Century Foundation. What is the Century Foundation? What does it do, especially as it relates to helping people and organizations create harmony between work and the rest of life? Well, the Century Foundation is a think tank that works to make sure that our public policies are equitable and fair and support the work of Congress to do that. 
and get information out into the public about it. My work there focuses in particular on women's economic justice and work and family and life. And that's the work that I've done throughout my entire career, really trying to make it possible for everyone and especially women to work and have the life they want, to work and support the families, their families in the way that they want. Um, and that's where my passion lies. And you discovered this passion, if I have it right, uh, as, as a student in Ann Arbor, low these many years ago, actually not that long ago, but from my vantage point, but 20 years ago, you were a college senior and you decided that you wanted to pursue this as your life's work. Do I have that right? That's exactly right. I was a senior at the University of Michigan, and I was a political science major, learning about public policy and all the ways that it could make a difference in the world, and had this aha moment where I thought, you know, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and I sort of thought that that's what I would do, but here I was, you know, really focusing on achievements and preparing myself for this big career and trying to have an impact on the world in some big way. Um, and thought, wait, how am I going to do both of those things? Mm. So in that moment, I said, you know what? I am going to fix this through public policy. So no one has to struggle with these questions. I did my undergraduate senior thesis on which states had maternity leave policies and what enabled them to do that and kind of dug right in right after college. I drove a U-Haul to Washington, D.C. and got my start on Capitol Hill, really trying to dig in and make a difference. My first job out of college, I got the chance to work on after-school programs and public policy for a member of Congress and um, have been working since. And, uh, you know, the goal, of course, was to solve it before my friends and I had kids. Um, I now have a uh, almost seven-year-old. So, you know, we're still working on it. Still working on what exactly? Still working on public policies that would make it easier for people to work and have a family. So to me, that includes fair paid family and medical leave policies. It includes affordable, high quality childcare and early learning policies that reach everyone, that treat childcare providers as valuable. Um, it's equal pay, it's better policies for long-term services and support so that we can support older Americans, you know, as someone who's joining the sandwich generation, really thinking about how we don't have a plan for what happens when our, our parents age. Um, the sandwich generation, uh, for those who might not be familiar with that term, means what? It's the idea of someone who's caring for kids, often young kids, as well as their parents. Stuck between both generations, caring for both Right. At, with yes. With all kinds very of little support from society with, or the government. Yes. And in most cases, uh, little support from their employers as well. That's right. Yeah. So this, of course, to most humane thinking minds seems unfathomable. How could it be that our nation clearly among, if not the most uh, wealthy in the world, could be so far behind the other nations of the world in our care for both the elderly and the young. This is a topic, as you can imagine, Julie, we have addressed a number of times over the years on this show. I'd love to get your take on that. 
What's wrong with us? <laughs> What's wrong with us? Uh, we are sexist and racist, quite frankly. Um, you know, look, we have built this country on this bootstraps mythology, this idea that, you know, you, you can pull yourself up with your bootstraps. You can, you know, everyone for themselves and individuals can can do it all on their own and that that's the ideal. And, you know, it's quite frankly, BS. And most people have not done it that way. And the reality is we've never built these systems because we've been able to rely on the unpaid work of women or the underpaid work of women of color, of black women, of immigrant women. You know, if you think about our history, slavery and chattel slavery relied on the, you know, the labor of Black women to care for children. And even after slavery was outlawed, we still had a lot of policies and cultural norms in this country where Black women were predominantly in the domestic work fields and, and still caring for children and elders. Same thing for immigrant women. And so we've consistently relied on, you know, just not paying well, um, and built up these systems, built up uh, workplace norms that are not for caregivers, that assume that there's a caregiver at home to take care of people, or that, you know, you can pay someone cheaply to care for whoever needs to be cared for. Right. So the model of the ideal worker being ever available uh, is built on the assumption that the domestic organization, so or the family, is structured so that uh, there is someone to care for children within the home on, right. on, on the basis of, you know, the, the individual initiative and resources available to that family. And that, that is clearly a broken model and yet it persists yet it persists. You have been in the trenches at the policy level, trying to, uh, advance the cause of a more progressive and uh, <clears throat> economically intelligent uh, program of I- ideas for support for working families. What do you find is the most uh, pronounced source of resistance to these policy ideas? We have really sticky cultural norms around these issues. You know, it's it's really hard to come out of the status quo and policymaking takes a long time. And so this combination of coming up against these cultural norms where you have, you know, you, have, you still have women who feel like it's their personal responsibility to do it all, to, you know, do the, the quote unquote, have it all. Um, you know, be the people who are working hard, be the people who are caring for their children, be the people who are caring for their parents, right? You know, if you think about even this moment, you had, you know, all of these moms telling their stories of getting vaccine appointments for their parents, right? They're they're kind of in charge of all of it. And they feel like that's their responsibility. And our cultural norms, our societal messages, our entertainment, our media all say, yep, it's on you. And we've never done the work. It's on to, you. It's on you, mom. It's on you, mom. It's on you, mom, to take care of it. Mm-hmm. And indeed, uh, one of our guests last year, uh, the the great sociologist uh, Katie Collins. I'm sure you're familiar with her work. She's done a cross national study uh, <clears throat> to show how uh, a number of nations in Europe and the United States compare with respect to how 
mothers feel about their childcare responsibilities. And it's only in the United States that working mothers take as their own responsibility this set of challenges. Whereas in Europe, working mothers assume, well, no, I'm supposed to get help on this. And of course they should. Families, mothers and fathers need help. Nobody gets there on their own. And yet, and yet these cultural norms and values persist. So what have you found to be most effective in trying to create change in the way that people think? That's the question I want you to address in 12 seconds after I just Great. remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio. It's Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm so glad you're here. Today, I'm speaking with Julie Cashin the Director for Women's Economic Justice and a Senior Fellow at the Century Foundation, which is a progressive think tank with offices in New York City and Washington, D.C., which is, I believe, where Julie is right now. Yes? I'm in Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn, my hometown. (laughs) What part of Brooklyn? Windsor Terrace. Windsor Terrace. Right near Prospect Park. Yeah, of course. I used to play tennis in Prospect Park. I grew up around Ocean Avenue. Yeah, we're Ocean Parkway. Well, let's stop with the Brooklyn geography (laughs) and get back to the question at hand. Uh, How do you make progress in changing such slow moving, monstrously, you know, entrenched ideologies about gender roles and the 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 importance of uh, individual initiative and responsibility in taking care of one's family? How do you get past that? Yeah, there are a lot of pieces to that puzzle. So one thing is that we need to elect more mothers. We need to elect more women to Congress. We know, you know, right now we have Representative Katie Porter, who's a single mom in Congress. And it's one of the first times I believe that we've had a single mom in Congress. That makes a difference. She looks Mm. at the policy ideas and says, wait a second, why is there a single mother penalty here in this policy solution? Mm -hmm. And can really, you know, have her lived experience be a part of this. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, there are barriers to that, right? It's hard to run for office if, because women make less money, right? Because of unequal pay and discrimination there. It's hard to run for office because you have these childcare responsibilities. And so we, it's, it's almost like a, you know, a catch 22 or a vicious cycle where we need more women to have power both in, you know, these formal positions of influence and informal positions of influence as organizers throughout the country. But until we have a system that supports care and that helps people to take on those responsibilities, it's hard to have the time to do those things, let alone the financial resources mm-hmm. to do those things. Mm-hmm. All of that said, we've made progress. We have mm-hmm. I think it's 10 states that have passed paid family and medical leave policies. Mm -hmm. We recently, once the pandemic happened and kind of took off the sheet and revealed just how challenging all of this has been for so long, Mm -hmm. you know, Congress said, okay, we're going to do something. Well, they didn't just say it on their own. Moms and dads and activists, you know, called, tweeted, texted, told their stories and made it really clear that this was unacceptable and something had to change. Um, So it takes all of those things. It takes kind of shining the light on it. It takes the activism, the rising up, the grassroots momentum. It takes having the right people in office and in power. Um, 
and it takes continued work on our cultural norms and mm-hmm. questioning those assumptions. Yes. I should note that uh, Vicki Shabo and I just last week uh, worked together to gather up the signatures of 298 of my business school faculty colleagues from 41 states around the country to write to the Biden-Harris administration and all members of Congress advocating for a national paid family and medical leave program now. Uh, so I, I have been trying to do my part. We, we, Vicky and I did a similar letter uh, about five years ago, and uh, it is a slog. It is so slow moving, but uh, you know if if we don't raise our voices and speak to the people who are influential in making policy, then of course change is not going to happen. Um, what do you make of the the rescue package um, in terms of its um, impact on on working families? Honestly, as especially after the last four years, I'm still celebrating. This is, you know, this is a package that says we need to lean into our humanity, lean lean into our community, lean into our values of lifting up the most vulnerable and making sure that, you know, we're looking after each other. And so just to see that, especially after these last four years, it just, it warms my heart and it excites me to be a part of policy work and the future. You know, this is a package that includes that got us up to the $50 billion that we've been calling for, for child care. Um, you know, that's, it was $39 billion that was in this plan on top of the $10 billion that was in the December plan. And that means that families across the country are going to be able to rely on child care. It means that the child care providers who have been using their own credit cards to pay for things so that they can keep their doors open are going to be able to rely on help. Help is on the way. And that's incredibly significant. And that was not all, right? There were so many other pieces to it. There was, you know, support for hunger relief efforts and eviction prevention and the child tax credit and an effort to cut child poverty. So this was a package that truly looked and saw families for who they are and what they need and began to do the work to help them stabilize their lives and stabilize their communities. And what impact do you think it's going to have? I think it will help. I think, you know, with childcare specifically, we started in this huge deficit, right? We we have never built the childcare system we need in this country, not since World War II, when, you know, the Lanham Act, it was called, was built so that while the men were off fighting the war, women could go to the factories and do work and there'd be childcare, right? But that they got rid of it as soon as the war ended and they wanted those jobs to be male jobs again. So since then, we've never built a childcare system in this country, and people have been going it alone. We've had some small programs that are connected to welfare or to, you know, lowest income families or to middle class tax credits, but we don't have a childcare and early education system at all. So when this all happened, whatever did exist, right, the programs that did exist were really decimated, were really hurt, right? We eroded the whole existence of what was there already that that had popped up through the demands and and the private needs and what what people were able to create. 
So now we're going to get back to there, right? So it's like, we're getting back to the shaky bridge of childcare and early education we had before the pandemic. And then we have this next big step that needs to happen once we stabilize the sector to build back better. And, and what's that look like in, in your vision uh, of, of an American childcare system that is uh, commensurate with the value that we claim to place on uh, children and the vulnerable in our society? I think that we need to think of it the same way we think of our K-12 education system, right? That that is a public good. We can even think of it like we think about roads and bridges, you know, or public transportation. You picture the subway system. You put government dollars into creating the, the system, and then you help people who can't afford to use it be able to afford it. Mm-hmm. And you regularly need to invest in making sure that the people there are paid good wages, that they're able to join a union, um, you know, that the quality of the service is good, um, you know, and of course, when we're talking about child care in the earliest years and infants and toddlers, we know that this is incredibly important time period in their lives where their brains are developing. And so we really want to make sure that the quality is there, that they're, you know, they have a great social emotional uh, support system for them to be able to grow uh, and thrive ultimately. So, you know, we need to kind of build this the system and then make sure that everybody who needs it can afford it. Mm-hmm. And we need to make sure that the childcare workers, the early educators are paid so much better than they are. Right now they've got right poverty level wages we're talking about. We're mm-hmm. talking about people who are needing to rely on public benefits. So A, we want them to have, we want people who work in the sector to be excited to work in the sector because yep. not only they love children, but they're going to be economically stable when they work with children. Here's a proposal, Julie. Okay. I've long held the theory that the closer you are to serving people in diapers, the, the worse you are treated from every aspect of employment. And that includes people who are babies and people who are uh, you know, nearing death. And I think, I think that's a good parsimonious theory to explain uh, one huge chunk of our labor market. I would suggest that if we're serious about investing in the needs of those people who are most vulnerable and most in need in our society, that we invert the pay scales of investment bankers and childcare workers. What do you think? I like it. What do you you think Corzon would say about that? (laughs) He might be on board. He he always calls himself a bleeding heart. Um, (laughs) Yeah, even as someone who used to run uh, a, a big chunk of Goldman Sachs, you think he'd go for go for that? I, I think he gets it. I think All right, so possible. do you want to? Can you get him you on the, on the show here so I can talk to him about that? I will see if he's available. Uh, I'll take that as a definite yes. I I used to, you know, people. Um, I used to say something like, "I would like to see uh, childcare workers make what basketball players make." That was sort of my uh-huh. my take. Same on concept. It. Yeah, same idea. Um, and and people laughed at me, Stu. I don't think people should laugh at this. I think this is a serious idea, and and it makes so much sense. Yeah, I I mean, it's an exaggerated claim, yes. but but it brings to mind like, okay, well, what value does a banker provide for our society? What value does a basketball player bring, and what value does a childcare worker bring? Let's let's now get a little closer to some sense of 
uh, equity in terms of uh, the compensation and career progression available to people in those respective fields. I mean, it's crazy, really, when you think it about it. It is crazy. And, I, uh, you know, look, I'm even open but, to, like, a win-win scenario, right? Like, investment bankers can keep their money, and we can pay child care workers better. But it's going to take government investment. That's yes, part, it of, is. part of the problem, right? We yes, it is. Parents can't afford to pay investment banker salaries no, to child care workers. <laughs> I know. Uh, and so public investment is indeed required, and yet there is this deep cultural uh, resistance um, and so we, we've started to talk here about the things that we can try to do in influencing policy. And I want to make sure we get into what citizens, including the people listening to our conversation right now, uh, if, if they agree uh, with what we are saying, what they can do uh, to add their voice and to help to create a better tomorrow for the next generation. So let's pick that up when we come back uh, from a short break here. Um, Don't go away, folks. When we come back, I'm going to be continuing my conversation with Julie Cashin of the Century Foundation. This is Stu Friedman, and it's Work and Life you're listening to on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. So glad you're here. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I am thrilled today to be speaking with Julie Cashin, who is the Director for Women's Economic Justice and a Senior Fellow at the Century Foundation. She also serves as a Senior Policy Advisor to the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and she works with people as a life coach on resolving work and life dilemmas Uh, She is in the trenches, both at the policy level, as well as on the ground working with individuals. Uh, Julie, let's get back. Let's get back to where we were uh, just a moment ago talking about what what citizens can do to help advance the cause, given what might seem like an overwhelming and long term challenge to change norms and values in society. How does one bring that down to what one can do as an individual now uh, without feeling overburdened and overwhelmed by the by the, you know, the enormous uh, nature of of that challenge? Everyone has a voice and everyone's voice can really make a difference in this. So it's everything from you know, sharing your own individual stories and experiences, sharing them through social media, sharing them with members of Congress, with your local elected officials, so that they can see, right? So that they can see it's actually not just you. (laughs) Um, The more of us tell our stories, the more we see each other in each other's stories, the more we see we are not alone. We are actually all in this um, and struggling with the same types of problems and the same challenges. Mm -hmm. So- I think starting to talk uh, and tell stories, I think joining parts of joining the movement, right? There's a lot of different parts of this movement. So, you know, get, get onto the mom's rising list and Mm -hmm. become part of that, Mm -hmm. you know, get to the parents together list and, and join in with, with 
other parents who are both kind of trying to make it work every day and also trying to make a difference about our public policies and influence politics. Um, we have a, a movement for a grassroots movement for childcare and early education that has a Facebook page where we connect online. So there's what's that called? Lot, um, it's the grassroots movement for childcare and early education. Is that um, is that is that through the Century Foundation or is that through some other entity? It's, uh, it was started by the Early Care and Education Organizing Network, um, mm-hmm. and that's something that I've been engaged with for the last six years or so, um, which is an effort to bring together groups that have a membership base fighting for gender, economic, and racial solutions with a racial lens. Uh, mm-hmm. solutions to the child care challenges. Mm-hmm. All right. And, and we'll give more information about where to find out uh, more about what you're doing at the, at the end of the show. Uh, but for now, let's, let's turn to um, <clears throat> you know, what the pandemic has wrought. Uh, you know, child care we have established is a common good benefits everyone uh, I was on a task force with uh, five or six other people um, and Vice President Al Gore in 1996. We met with him in his office in the old executive building um, three or four times throughout the year and then organized a, a, a day-long conference in June of that year to look at work and family issues. And in those conversations, I talked about um, the need for an infrastructure of support, of care. And that idea is now in the zeitgeist, a care infrastructure. Uh, there are, you know, s- some of us have been talking about this for decades. Yes. Um, and of course, you know, it's, it's been around as an issue for centuries. <laughs> so, you know, progress is happening. We are, as, as you pointed out and, and enumerated so clearly in the first part of the show, but it's slow. And it requires that everyone sees it as their responsibility, but it's hard. It's hard to spend time, uh, but there are ways to get involved, as you have just described. But the pandemic has created all kinds of new problems and at the same time, new opportunities because it's really smashed open, as you said, lifted the veil uh that that has opened up to so many of our, us uh, our eyes to you know the the inequities um and while the data on the labor market participation of men and women is is evolving in terms of what we know about the impact on the pandemic one thing we know for sure is that childcare and homeschooling burdens have fallen pre- predominantly to mothers to women whether or not they were primary breadwinner Um, you know, in relation to their husbands. So this is a huge deal for working women. What have you seen in terms of the impact of the pandemic on working women's lives? It's been incredibly challenging, you know, for everyone, but for working women, and especially Black women, Latino women, Indigenous women, Native women, right there, has been the biggest challenges, which have been the combination of either job loss because they were in the service sector or in a public sector job, you know, the loss of caregiving, uh, you know, whether it was relying on a grandparent where that was no longer safe or relying on a, a public 
for a private program uh, that had closed down because of the pandemic, um, or because you know they were essential workers who had to show up at work at risk to their own health, at risk to their family's health, and at risk to their care needs, right? Not necessarily having a solution. So I think women have really borne a lot of responsibility and a lot of the challenge of this. I did a study with Sarah Jane Glynn from the Center for American Progress and Amanda Novello from the Century Foundation. We found that we were at risk for losing more than $64 billion a year in women's aggregate wages if there was nothing else done about the childcare challenges. And that's the combination of women leaving the labor market altogether mm -hmm. or reducing their hours. So this is significant for women, of course, and their families, but also for the entire economic, you know, economic stability of the country. Mm -hmm. And that's just as a result, that 64 billion is estimated to be just as a result of the lack of childcare support. Is that what you're... It's specifically, right, the, the women who left their jobs or uh, reduced their hours because of the lack of childcare support. Exactly. So, so what, what does it take to get both sides of the aisle to agree that we should be caring for our children? One thing that is promising is that childcare has often been a bipartisan issue. Right. Fifty years ago, right in in 1971, a bipartisan bill, the Comprehensive Child Development Act, passed Congress on a bipartisan basis. Mm -hmm. You know, President Nixon vetoed it, which is why it doesn't exist today. But it did have bipartisan support. Similarly, in 2014, the Child Care Development Block Grant was reauthorized on a completely bipartisan vote. The biggest increase in funding before the American Rescue Plan was also a bipartisan vote. So, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, A, we know that Republican voters support child care, right? But when we're talking about the politicians, we have seen politicians, we've seen the people in office, you know, go there. Um, and it was really interesting. There was a hearing recently about child care and you, the Republicans would start to talk and you'd start to hear them saying things that sounded a lot like what the Democrats were saying about support for childcare and supporting mm -hmm. families. Mm -hmm. But then they had their limits. You know, they would kind of go to, oh, except if a woman can be home, she should be. Or, oh, mm. but it should only be for the lowest income families. No one else should have access to it. Or, you know, kind of just, it was like only up to a point. And so I think there needs to be continued work to really make the case. And one thing that was also interesting during the pandemic, the Chamber of Commerce and the Chamber of Commerce Foundation came out in support of public child care um, or public funding for child care in That's a way big. that they haven't before. Exactly. And so what they were seeing was employers <laughs> couldn't really function without all the parents that work for them. Duh. <laughs> I'm sorry to be using that expression from the 90s before Julie was in like preschool. I was in college in the 90s. Well, anyway, you know what I'm saying? That it just seems so obvious. And yet, and yet, and yet. So, um, you know, all the rhetoric is in support of, you know, caring for families and children. Um, and, and still there, there is, there is resistance, but we do have a cause to celebrate with this uh, with this rescue package. What else is in it? Uh, you know, people know about the fourteen hundred dollar checks. Um, what else is in it that people should know about that you feel really good about? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm going to continue to focus on this 
childcare piece, right? Which is that because there's still steps that need to be taken, right? States need to get this money out and childcare providers need to apply to get that money. Uh So, you know, I want to make sure that like, you know, if you, if you are listening and you are a parent and you have a childcare provider, like make sure they know about this money, make sure they're applying. If it's a, you know, a small provider, a home-based provider, like we want to make sure this gets everywhere. So I think that's really, really important. Um, How does one do that? How would a parent do that? Well, right now, uh, the states are coming up with their policies for it. The money's not even quite out the door yet. So we have to wait and see, but pay attention because this information will be coming out and we will try to make sure that everyone knows exactly what it takes to get to this money Mm -hmm. uh, once once that's known. Um, So in addition... The one of the things that happened in this, you know, we know, as you said, you know, and and Vicki Shobo is a, an amazing advocate on this also, uh, that we need a paid family and medical leave policy for everyone. This bill did not include that. It did include tax credits for employers who provide paid family leave. It also has tax, those tax credits for self-employed people. So I think that's really important for people to know about that if they are a freelancer, if they're, you know, misclassified as an independent contractor, that if they needed paid leave, they can take it and get money back through this, these tax credits. Um, and mm-hmm. that employers should, you know, should go ahead and feel even more confident than before for providing paid leave for their employees, knowing that they will be able to get some resources in return for that. Can you, can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Um, the tax credit basically says that if you are an employer and you provide paid leave to your employee, that a portion of that, um, and I don't have the details off the top of my head, but we'll send you something for the website, um, you know, can, can be returned to the employer through taxes. Okay. So there is some incentive there. Um, <clears throat> I want to pick up on uh, paid leave but first, let me just remind listeners, this is Work in Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I am your host, Stu Friedman, and I am speaking today with Julie Cashin, who is the Director for Women's Economic Justice and a Senior Fellow at The Century Foundation. So why not a national paid family medical leave program, Julie? What's the it's problem? It's time. It's time. It I is mean, time. It is it time. Happen. This is our now. year. This is the year. Right. And this is exactly what me and the 297 other signatories on this letter to the federal government are claiming. What's the problem? Sigh. <laughs> What's the problem, <laughs> right? All right. Um, you know, I mean, it it is hard to get people to think about things differently, you know, but there sh- I, I guess I just feel like there shouldn't be one, right? Because we're talking about a social insurance program. This is, you know, unemployment insurance is like this, right? A social insurance program, you pay into it, your employer pays into it, you get it out, you can rely on it when you need it. That's all that this is. It's a social insurance program that says we all pay in for it and we get it when we need it. It's not just for new babies, right? Just like Social Security. Exactly. Just like Social Security, right? It's for new babies. It's for newly adopted children. It's for foster children. It's for military families, right? It's for caring for your other loved ones when they're seriously ill. And if you're seriously ill, it allows you to take the time off you need and pay. And let's be clear, like this, we're talking about a 12 week policy and that's the part we can't get past. I mean, we should be talking about something much more than that. If you ask A year, me. a At year, least, more right? like I mean, Europe. 
you know, when I, when I had my son, I took four months of unpaid leave. I was very privileged to be able to do that. Be yes, you were. To do that. And I mean, he wasn't sleeping through the night until four months. I don't know how moms do it. So many go back after two weeks. You are not sleeping. You are not yourself. It is just, it is not good for children. It's not good for families and it's not good for employers. Uh, right. <laughs> of course. And <laughs> You know, throughout most of Europe, for, uh, for as the primary you know point of comparison, uh, our programs are downright Neanderthal, uh, if I can use that phrase, uh, in a way that our president has been using it with respect to other really uh, short-sighted thinking. Um, so, a care revolution is indeed needed. And it seems like the energy for that is is rising. Do you see it the same way? I do. And I, you know, there's an amazing leader, Ai Jin Poo, who leads the National Domestic Workers Alliance of Caring Across Generations, who's been talking about these issues for years. She's convening a number of amazing leaders in the women's movement and the care movement and the disability rights movement across, you know, seniors and, and older Americans. Um, and and making sure that kind of we see how these issues all come together. I think I think bringing these issues together, making it clear that they are gender justice, racial justice, economic justice issues. That you know all of these, it's it's personal, it's families, it's communities, and it's also about our infrastructure and our economy. Right? We cannot have an economic recovery if we don't address these issues. You know, if we just invest in roads and bridges as infrastructure, as you well know and have been saying for decades, right? Then we will not have a full economy. We won't have full labor force participation. And so we need to all come together. I think, you know, we have these promising things in place. We have a president who talks about it. We have a vice president who's talking about care. We have a gender policy council in the White House that is focused on care and the care agenda. Um, you know, and this bill that passed the, in the American Rescue Plan has major uh, pieces for care. You know, it, it, it's not only childcare, there's also money in there for home and community-based services, mm -hmm. which are, you know, the preferred way that so many people would like to age or, or receive support if they are a person with disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I think, I think we're moving in the right direction. Tell, tell us more about the uh, Gender Policy Council and why the Century Foundation is applauding it. The Gender Policy Council is sitting in the White House to make sure that issues that impact gender equity are front and center and that, you know, they're addressed in every part of the administration. So, you know, that they're part of the domestic policy conversations, they're part of the foreign policy conversations. And, you know, it's being led by Jennifer Klein, who's a longtime leader in this area and uh, co-chair. A competent person in the role. <laughs> Love she's, it. She's pretty amazing. Um, and her co-chair, Delissa, who's in the vice president's office. Um, so, you know, kind of this direct contact with our first woman vice president, right, who gets these issues. She's a stepmother. She's, you know, she's lived and breathed, breathed these issues, too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, the combination of, of these factors is really making me very hopeful. 
Me too, Julie. You're, you're bringing some light into, into the world in your work. And in the few minutes that we have uh, remaining here, tell us about what other issues are at the forefront of what the Century Foundation is doing and, and what you personally are, are working on in the months and years to come. Um, I think right now, my big focus uh, in my work at the Century Foundation is twofold. It's number one, as we've discussed, Childcare just got the largest increase in, you know, decades. And we need to make sure that money's used well, right? That yeah. money needs to go to the families who need it, to the providers who need it. We need to make sure that, you know, it is a meaningful investment and that states do the right thing with that money. So one part of my work is really focused on making sure that that's a reality. Well, wow, how other- do you do that? How do you make sure that the 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 evildoers are not skimming off you know huge chunks of that uh, cream and 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 using it instead for you know their own selfish purposes and not the those for which it it is uh, dedicated. One of the greatest privileges of working on childcare is that it is a very kind of deep and broad movement, right? That we have we have people who are part of this who represent the you know childcare resource and referral agencies across the country, who represent the childcare and early education professionals around the country, um, who represents you know the the family home childcare provider. So. There is this really broad table of folks who are together, working together, who care about all aspects of it, who care about child development, who care about mom's employment, who care about caregiving writ large, who you know want workers to make more money or have a voice to have a union. So working across in coalition with all of those different folks to and make sure that the folks on the ground are resourced, make sure that the, you know, the parents who are the most vulnerable are at the table, have a voice in the conversations about what they need. Mm. So it's kind of all of those different pieces. How do you do that from a think tank? (laughs) I work in coalition. Um, You know, I, I work really closely with a lot of different partners who have all of these different, who represent, you know, all of these different aspects of it. Uh, and I try to bring, you know, my own perspective from policy, from research and from my years doing different parts of this work uh, to bear to to make sure that we're working collaboratively and collectively. That is so important. And uh, I'm really glad to to know that you are in the role that you are in doing the work that you're doing. Um, what else in the couple minutes we've got left here? Uh, do you want to let us know about in terms of, you know, the work that you're doing and the challenges ahead? Well, part two is exactly what you said before about infrastructure. So once we've stabilized the system, we need to build the new care system. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's another big part of work. We need to make sure we don't end up with a bill that just has roads and bridges with no care scaffolding, with no care infrastructure in it. So So Pete Buttigieg is going to be part of the solution here? Absolutely. Does Does he see infrastructure as including care? I don't know. I know that on his campaign trail, to be honest, he had a great answer to what was needed for child care as when he was running for president. And so hopefully that will infiltrate to his new role in transportation. All right. Well, uh, sorry to interrupt. Please continue with your (laughs) summation here. As to what the next phases of work are. And, and so this includes child care and early education. It includes paid family medical leave. It includes long-term services and supports. It includes the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights and making sure that, um, you know, we treat the people who do this care work much better than they're currently treated. 
So I think that's, that's enough for the rest of the year. It'll keep me busy. <laughs> <laughs> but you're also doing some work with individuals, if I have it right. Is that that's correct? That's right. I, I am a certified professional co-active coach, and I use that training to support individuals to kind of figure out their own work and family challenges um, and to, to kind of you know, break through some of those cultural norms to give up the guilt to let go and to get really clear on what it is they truly want so that they can go and have that. Right. We all have to be working where we can to make change happen, whether that's at the level of the individual, the family, the organization, the community, our society. It has to happen at all those levels. Um, and, and everyone's voice, as you have said and have demonstrated so well, really matters. And uh, I'm, I'm so grateful to you for the work that you do and for telling us about it today. As you think about the world that your child is emerging into, what, what's your greatest hope for them? So my son is almost seven and he recently said to me, I want to be an astronomer, but I also want to be a daddy. And I don't know how I'm going to do both of those things. I swear he's almost seven. Um, So my greatest hope is that, you know, it gets really clear to him that he can do both. And then he has the support from government and society to do both of those things and realize those dreams and literally reach for the stars. That's that's some that's some delightful poetry there, Julie. You must have prepared that in advance of this conversation because that's just too good. Reaching for the stars. Wow. So how did he get interested in astronomy, I wonder? <laughs> he uh he's got some great books about space and uh he's just fascinated by the planets and loves to talk about it when he's not talking about chess. <laughs> <laughs> Those are related. I can see the connection there. So are you interested in stars? Uh, no. <laughs> but I'm interested in my son and his happiness. <laughs> of course you are. It's clear. It's clear. All right, Julie. So uh, we have to wrap up here. Where can people find out more about uh, what you're doing, what the Century Foundation's doing, and, and get involved in some way? TCF.org uh, is a starting point. Um, and... You know, as I said, I'm a part of all of these different coalitions. So I would say to, you know, engage with Moms Rising and Parents Together and National Women's Law Center and CLASP. And, you know, there's so many amazing folks who are part of this work. And, you know, it, it's a pleasure to get to lift them up. Yes. Uh, and I am grateful to you for taking some time to talk with us today about, about your work. Julie Cashin, thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks for all of your work as well. Well, thank you. And thank you for listening uh, to this conversation. I hope that you are now a bit more informed about what is happening on the policy front. Uh, the, the hopefulness that Julie and I share and that many others do too about what's possible and uh, that the realization of a society that truly invests in the next generation is is, uh, well, it's a prospect that is indeed real. Thank you for listening in. And don't forget to tune in next week, 5 p.m. Eastern. If you have a question about something you heard on the show, something you disagree with, something you want to learn more about, write to me, Friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. You can find out more about what I'm up to 
at totalleadership.org. All kinds of free stuff there, book chapters, articles, and more. Thanks, Patty Hall. Thanks, Chris Tooks, for engineering. And thanks again for listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.